0: Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. Michael Shelley, right here for you. Uh, I'm on vacation this week. I am somewhere where it's hopefully sunny and warm. At least that's the idea and I uh, hope you enjoyed Mike Sin filled in for me this morning if you listened on the radio, but I've got an encore presentation of the podcast today. This originally aired it was a live interview uh, May 23rd, 2009 Big Jim Sullivan. Of course he's passed away since this interview, so it's kind of tragic, but this guy plays on so many, so many amazing records, and uh, we play some of them in the show, so you might want to head over to WFMU.org slash Michael and uh, listen to the Whole program, which has all the music, but uh, this one has. Uh, there's a few little uh, snippets at the end of this of some of Big Jim's work. But uh, it's just a sweet interview. Nice guy. Like I said, so many great records. And uh, a listener in California asked me to re- rebroadcast this one. So if you've got an idea for uh, an encore presentation for the podcast, you can email me, S at wfmu.org. Uh, I'm not sure what's coming up. So check. The, always just keep your eye over it at uh, wfmu.org/slash Michael. There's always a list there of what's coming up. All right, uh, hopefully I'm back next week safe and sound and suntanned, not sunburned. Here is the great Big Jim Sullivan. Yes, there is the uh, amazing Thunderclap Newman featuring the amazing Big Jim Sullivan. Uh, It's just an amazing body of work. Big Jim, welcome to the program. Uh, How are you? Fine, thank you. Uh it it's just I'm looking over the list of songs and it is really mind blowing. You must hear yourself on the radio every single day. Yeah, more than once. <laughs> Does it get old or is it always exciting? No. Not really anymore. Just uh
1: and it's, it's 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 great it's great to feel that you've left your mark.
0: Yeah. Uh, you were born in uh Uxbridge, Middlesex, England. That's... Uh, and uh, I believe that's 1941 when did you pick up the guitar when did music become part of your life
1: 1940
0: oh yeah and uh, right
1: away you... no I'm only joking <laughs> when I was about when I was about 13 I picked up the guitar
0: and what wh- why What was there something on the radio was it
1: I think uh, um, <clears throat> I think it was the, the, the rock and roll that started Bill Haley Being played, you know, um, and and various things like that. It was on, well, it was on film anyway. The the blackboard jungle had made its rounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were all dancing up the aisles of the cinema and all that, (laughs) driving to Bill Haley, you know. Yeah. It was solo in Rock Around the Clock, which totally fascinated.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic guitar solo. I, I'm sure it inspired many. So, how long did it take till you figured out that this was something you were good at?
1: It never really kind of entered my mind. Um, it was it was something that one thing just led to another, and all of a sudden, you know, within a, a couple of years, I was professional
0: musician. Huh? Uh, great. So, you, did you ever have to have a, another job? You know. Uh apprenticing or doing something else or was that it?
1: I did work at Park Davis, it's a chemical firm, for for just a, a brief
0: period. Hmm. Uh, you, you hooked up, I think one of the first guys was Marty Wild in the Wildcats, right?
1: Right, yeah. I was 17 when I joined Marty. Yeah.
0: 17 years old. And what was the scene like? I mean, what was the demand for gigs th- at that time?
1: Well, uh, Marty did I mean, there there were these small cinemas, especially up north, called the Star Circuit. And uh, we used to do these tours uh, around the Star Circuit cinema. And that obviously led on to other tours uh, down south and all over England, in fact.
0: So this is 1959 or so. Was it the kind of show where you're playing three songs 15 times a day, or is it one proper long set?
1: No, we just did one set with Marty.
0: Hmm. And at that time, you're playing a gold-top uh, Gibson guitar that used to belong to Rosetta Tharp. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of great YouTube footage of her playing that same guitar, and she's an amazing guitar player. Uh, and and uh, he, where did he get the guitar?
1: Well, Monty got it um, from Sister Rosetta Tharp.
0: Just bought it off her?
1: Yeah, I believe so. Hmm. And, you know, I took it over from Marty, and, uh, and in 59, when the American guitar started coming over here, I got myself a Gibson 345.
0: And what did you do with uh, Sister Rosetta Tharpe's guitar?
1: I sold it back to Marty. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's probably worth $8 million now. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah, It's worth a lot of money, that guitar. Yeah. Is it still around anywhere? If anybody's still got that. In fact, I asked Marty if he still had it, and he said no. Hmm.
0: Yeah, so I, oh, there was. A, I didn't realize there was a point where American tar- guitars just simply weren't available in the U.K., is that right? Well, up until 1959... Uh, that explains a lot. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting how nowadays, you know, 90% of bands use two or three brands of guitars, but back then there were lots and lots of brands and everybody had a different uh, shape guitar.
1: Um. Well, yeah, on, on the British scene, there were a few um, hand-made guitars which looked a bit like a Strat or a 335 or something like that. But the real the real things were very rare. I mean mine three four five was the first one in the country.
0: Hmm. Uh the Wildcats also uh, backed up Eddie Cochran, is that right? Yes we did, yeah. Uh, what was that experience like?
1: Well that was great because Eddie was great, you know, I mean he was he was a great musician. He was a musician first foremost, really. Hmm. And um he was also a great singer. Um We originally were supposed to back Gene Vincent, and of course, I knew I was raised on on Cliff Gallup and that, and Gene Vincent when I was a kid, you know, and I knew all the solos, so I thought, oh, that's great. But when Eddie came, I I was a bit disappointed, actually. But uh, when, when we actually met Eddie and he started playing guitar, you know, we thought, oh, wow, you know, this is something else.
0: He's real. And, that, and Gene Vincent had his accident, right? That's why that didn't go over?
1: Um, well, Gene Vincent had an accident before he came over to England. That's how he got the irons on the legs.
0: Mm. Uh, so how did you make the transition from that to becoming, you know, one of the most in-demand session guys? How did that happen? And, and, and did it sort of, it seems to me that it happened at the same time that the British record industry sort of started booming as well
1: when I joined Marty uh, we did his first album called Wild About Marty and um, of course you know I could bend the strings and all that sort of thing and nobody else did that over here uh, And but of course I couldn't read so that stopped it a bit but there were guys who were still willing to use me so all right from the start Jack Good used me on most of his uh,
0: studio recordings. And word just got around.
1: And word got around from there, you
0: know. Yeah. Was there like a, a strange, um, you know, the older school guys who had grown up playing jazz or playing sort of, you know, music hall, show music, and and could read music, you know, obviously they wanted to make money playing rock and roll, but was there a weird resentment between that generation and your generation? There
1: was, yes. Yeah, there was. A- bit of resemblance but some of of the older guys were really good you know um, guys like Eric Ford who um, used to play on on, uh, the TV show Jack Good um, the one that Martin did Oh Boy Mm. and um, you know there were various guitarists around who, who played Judd Proctor for instance very high class English jazz guitar player you know um, Ike Isaacs. A few of these guys kind of took me under their wing, you know, and and kind of um, put me on the right track, as it were.
0: <laughs> and did you eventually learn to read? Oh, yeah. And and at that point, you, you could just pretty much come in and play anything? Well,
1: i tell you what started me to read. Somebody called me, a, a guy called Harry Benson, who was one of the British... There was only two British bookers for session. One was Charlie Katz, one was Harry Benson. And he booked me for this session at Elstree Studios, a film session. And he told me it was a rock and roll thing. And I said, look, I can't read. I can record, you know, but I can't, I can read, but I can't read fast. You know, I can't sight read. Mm. Oh, don't worry about that. I get to the session. 75 piece orchestra and three guitars. There was Judd Proctor, Ernie Shears, and myself. And I was on the third guitar part, rhythm guitar part. So I thought, oh, that's great, that's, that's okay, I should make this. And when I got my part, all my chords were written in notation.
2: Yeah.
1: Or one chord, chord on the whole piece. And couple of times through. Of course, I couldn't read it, you know. So a voice came down from the box upstairs uh, in the studio and said, would the third guitar player kindly pack his gear and go home? <laughs> in front of all of these musicians.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: And I was, what, 17? <laughs> anyway, I cut a long story short, Judd Proctor who uh, picked me up to take me to the studio, took me back again, took me home. And he said, get all of, the, all of the things like Bach, all of the single-line studies, flute studies, violin studies, anything that's single-line, that's continuous notes, and re- learn to read the notes. So I did that, and he said, once you've done that, get drum parts, trumpet parts, or anything like that, and learn to read the rest. He said, it's not the notes problem, it's the rest. The rest, The syncopation hmm. of, of the music, which puts everybody off, you know. Hmm. And that's the hardest thing to do. anyway. I did six months. And <clears throat> after six months, this Harry Benson called me again to do a session. And I did the session. And it happened to be this same conductor that kicked me off the other session. <laughs> And it was a Latin American. He's very well known for his Latin American stuff. His name was Stanley Black. Oh. And um, I just shot through this part, you know, I just sight read it. And he came up to me afterwards and, and said to me, that was that was fantastic. I really, uh, I'll have to use you again. He said, but, but have we met before? <laughs> and I nearly said to him, yeah, I'm the guy you throw off the session. But I said, uh, no, no, we haven't
0: Wow! Uh, that's how I learned to read. That's an amazing story, and it's not so easy to do when you know it's like a language. It's harder to do as you get older, I think.
1: Yeah, if you have a bit of guidance, you know, like I had a bit of guidance, these guys and any time. The great thing about sessions were all the musicians were top guys. So if there's anything you wanted to know, whether it be technical, you know, whether it be musical, whatever, there was somebody. To answer your
2: question,
1: you know. So uh, consequently, I I learned in leaps and bounds, you know.
0: Yeah, I guess all those teachers in one room. So let's talk about what it was like. I mean, what was the typical day like uh, for you? I mean, at your busiest, what was the schedule like?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, I've done days like uh, rolling stones in the morning. They were used to. Uh, they used to use me on doing all their their demos. Hmm. So it'd be the Rolling Stones in the morning, in the afternoon, I don't know. It could be anybody, you know, from from the tremolos to Kathy Kirby, to Tom Jones, to um, you name it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the evening, I might have a session at uh, at uh, uh, Decca Three Studios doing these quadraphonic decca um, albums, you know, with Frank Jacksfield, you know, 80, 90-piece orchestras. Hmm.
0: And, and when you walk in to do, uh, you know, a Tremolos record or just, you know, one of the uh, thousands of records that you made, would there be a chart? Would you hear a demo of the song? Would the singers run it down with you? Or how would the, how would the whole thing start?
1: More often than not, we've got a chord chart. Mm-hmm. And we'd sit in the studio with the singers uh, and uh, just run through with with the arranger, you know, because the arranger was, was was there. And in those days, everything was live. Strings as well, you see.
2: Mm.
0: So, everyone, so the singer live as well?
1: Uh-huh. The singer was live as well, yeah.
0: Yeah, amazing.
1: Yeah, well, it's only on two-track machines, you see. We only had two track. It wasn't until, like, 60, what, 62, the 4 track came in.
0: Hmm. It, it, it must be have been uh, kind of amazing to walk in and not know if you were going to cut, you know, an obscure track that would be on, you know, the, the second to last song on an album or a number one hit. You know, you never knew from one day to the next.
1: Well, true. well it, it was only uh, um, a couple of years ago that I found out I did David Bowie's first album.
0: <laughs> yeah. Really? You're not on the credits for it, I'm pretty sure.
1: No, I know. Um but uh it was Herbie Flowers
0: that told me. He said you were there. So you did you keep a notebook? Do you ha- do you have any sort of record that you kept? No. Huh. No, it's-
1: it was it was it was a bit unfortunate because I wish we had of with all this PPL business and all, that, you know, but no, we didn't. You know, I mean, you never do anyway the the fix would Call you, and say, Jim, got a session for you. turn uh, to a one, EMI. Um, it's on. Let you'll need your twelve string and your acoustic and your electric. So they'll be doubling in it. You know. Mm.
0: And and how much did a regular session pay? A three-hour session. Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Wow. Well, I guess you had to work a lot, three sessions yeah. a day. Uh, so uh, one of the problems I had sort of researching things and uh, was I-, I found a lot of contradictory evidence that, you know, uh, one list would say that you play on record. Another list would say it was Jimmy Page or some other guitar player that played on a record. It must be frustrating uh, uh, in some ways to not have a definitive record.
1: Jimmy knows what he played on, and I know why.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to name some artists and, uh, y- you know, just give me a couple of sentences about what each guy or each each person or each session was like. Tell me a little bit about Dave Barry. Um,
1: Dave, That on the first thing I did with Dave, which was My Baby Left Me, that was the first session I ever did with Jimmy Page. Hmm. And uh, Jimmy played lead on that, and I played uh, rhythm. But on, um, uh,
0: what's the... Are you on Crying
1: Game or Little Things? On Crying Game, I did the lead, yeah.
0: Uh, that sort of wah-wah, volume pedal guitar? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, great thing. Uh, let's talk about Lulu. Uh, what a, a small ball of energy. Yeah, fantastic.
1: Yeah. Uh, I remember when she came in the studio, I think she was only 14. <laughs> And we did shout, ah. DC BC Studios in Regent Street. That was
0: with Jack Good. Mm, Jack Good produced that. Uh, Marian Faithful's As Tears Go By. You play on that, right? Yeah, uh,
1: so the original, um, thing of Tears Go By for the Spokes, the original demo.
0: Oh, ah, interesting. What about all those Herman's Hermits cuts? Do you play on all of those? Most of most of them. And what was Mickey most like? He produced uh, most of those records. What kind of a guy was he? What kind of a producer was he? He was a good producer.
1: Yeah, yeah no, he was a good producer. He he um he kind of let us down at the latter end of, of things by saying that we didn't play on certain titles. But mm. uh, you know, he knows we did and we know we did and mm. so
0: so W- was there ever a situation where you would come in and play on a Herman's Hermits records? And, you know, Herman's Hermits was an actual band with musicians in it who went out and played live concerts. Was there resentment from the guys in the band you were replacing? Very much so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very much so. Uh, <coughs> I had a thing a few years ago, about four years ago. Uh, one of the guys, a guitar player, phoned me up from Herman's Hermits and... How are you, Jim, and all that sort of thing. And he, he t- eventually, you know, it came to why he called, <laughs> he called because he said, I didn't play on the Herman Service tracks. Hmm. So um, I said to him, Well, you've got a short memory because if you remember, you came over to my house in Woodside Park and I taught you the solo that I played on the record. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, things like that happen in this business, which is a shame, you yeah. know. <laughs>
0: how can you explain to people listening how it is that, uh, you know, whoever that guy was, but a band like Herman's Hermits that had been together for years uh, and maybe even rehearsed songs over and over again, guys like you could still come in having never heard the song and do something just a little bit different that was was better for the record?
1: That's why we were. That's why we work, that's why I, the people called on me to do that, exactly that, yeah. make up something, you know, Do can you make up something here, can you play a solo, you know, to, uh, and, and that's why, you know, people like myself um, and all the other session guys, that's why we worked like we did. We were doing three sessions a day for seven days a week, you know.
0: Mm. Months in and months out. Yeah, it's amazing. The, the amount of records you made is amazing. Freddie and the Dreamers, uh, Billy J. Kramer, Peter and Gordon, Dave Clark 5, The Searchers, Dusty Springfield, Wayne Fontana, uh, The Fortunes, Patula Clark Walker Brothers, Los Bravos, uh, The Seekers. It goes on and on really forever. <laughs> it's almost every song in the top 40 in the 60s in the U.K. Well, that's,
1: that's what happened that's what happened, you know, I mean, we, as I say, you know, we could be doing Dusty Springfield in the morning, Herman's in the afternoon, you know, and uh, whoever at night. Mm. Uh, What
0: about the kinks you really got me? Do you play on that one?
1: No, I don't. Well, in actual fact, I think I did play on that because I went, I was called into overdub some guitar. Mm. And so I think, but I don't say I played on it, I say... No, because that was uh, Dave anyway.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I Dave. think perhaps it's Jimmy Page on rhythm guitar and uh, Dave certainly on lead guitar. Uh, but it is odd that that's a record that you do get credit with uh, once in a while. What about the Zombies' She's Not There? Do you play on that? Yeah. Yeah. What an amazing sounding record that is. Were there records that you got excited about because they were so good? I mean, I know everybody was a professional, but when a great record or a great performance come did did everybody's you know, did it get kicked up a little bit, the excitement?
1: Yeah, you know, we all get in the box and this the recordings back, you know, and we all turn around and say,
0: Yeah, that's a hit, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or whatever. You know what I mean? It's
1: uh but, you know, the excitement uh it's taken out of it a bit when we walk off with our 7 pound or when it went up 12 pound in the 60s. Um and 3 months later we see the artist that we've just worked for drive in in his Rolls-Royce. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well that that was uh, I was going to ask you about that. I mean uh, it's very it's a strange business, yeah.
1: But that was our job. Yeah. That was our job. You know, and and I earned a good living. You know, I had an I had a nice house and a couple of cars and a nanny for my kids and all that sort of thing. So, you know, it was good era for, for me and the guys like me.
0: Mm. Uh, w- when uh, when the Beatles came, I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're one of the few guys that had a you know a demonstrably decade really in the business before the Beatles came along. What did you think when you first heard them? And uh, did you realize how big it was going to be and how much it was going to change everything, including your job?
1: Well, I think I, th- I think we did. Yeah, you know, we liked the Beatles. I met the Beatles real early on. In the studio because I used to do a lot of work for George Martin and consequently doing work for him the Beatles all the guys were there at some time or other and they'd uh, they'd all heard of me anyway mm. and they all wanted them I became good friends with um, George and paul and um, I used to i ended up playing going over to George's house uh on a reasonable bassist uh, uh, and played sitar with him.
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess you two guys were really the the two first guys to play the sitar that led to your 1967 record Sitar Beat and the Lord Sitar album from 1968 which was made under a, 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 a you know an assumed name Lord Sitar with kind of fuzzy pictures and nobody knew who Lord Sitar was exactly. Right, I know, yeah. but, did those records sell a lot of records at the time? Well, they're still selling now. No, they didn't sell a lot. Yeah, they are on a lot of compilation records. You find tracks from those records. Uh, they're very groovy. I mean, I love them. We heard a, a few, uh, or, or just, a, just a few minutes ago. Uh, was there a, did you ever think I'm going to be a big star as a solo act?
1: No, never ever thought, no, never ever crossed my mind. I never <laughs>
0: wanted to be. Yeah, just knock them off and put them out there and see what happens. Yeah. Would
1: have liked to have made a lot more money, you know. Hmm. But as far as being a star now, I never had any pretensions about that.
0: Uh, let's talk about producers. You, you're in a, a rare vantage point. Let me remind everybody, we're talking to Big Jim Sullivan, UK session guitar player on thousands of amazing chart hits. Uh, you're in a unique position, a point of view, to observe different producers at work. Uh, yeah. Were there some guys who were really on it and who really made a hit from nothing and other guys who were just more lucky to be in the right place at the right time?
1: Um. Uh, yes. Were, you know, I mean, it, it's like, um, what's the, uh, what's their name? Stone and American guy, two American guys. Um, oh, jeez, Producer Decker. Can't remember their names. Okay. Mike, Mike Stone and somebody else, I can't remember. Um, there were guys like that, of course, there were guys like Peter Sullivan. And uh, George Martin, of course. Um,
0: you work with Joe Meek. You work with Paul McCartney as a producer, and uh... yeah,
1: worked with Chet Atkins as a producer. Huh. Work, um, uh, oh my god!
0: <laughs> you know, yeah, everybody.
1: Yeah, but you know, I mean, all all of the all of the um, the big producers like Gus Dudgeon, for
2: instance, mm.
1: was a tape jock first met him at Decker Studios Hmm. you know he used to make the tea and put the (laughs) uh, and uh, and so did a, a few of the other younger guys who who made it really big
0: you know yeah that is even the Beatles guys they all moved up the ladder sort of yeah yeah it's a, sort of a, an amazing system. Uh, PJ Proby, John Barry, uh, Freddie and the Dreamers, Donovan. Which Donovan records do you uh, play on? That's another one that's kind of disputed, and the credits on the records don't always seem to match what what happened.
1: No, I know. I saw the other night uh, I was watching a film about Donovan, and he actually credits me hmm. on a couple of the records, Mellow Yellow and
0: the girls. Do you play on Sunshine Superman? Fine oh, too. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? That's very interesting. It is. Uh, it would be nice to get all of this uh, corrected. You know.
1: Well, you're never going to do it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> they never are. Yeah. Are there contracts somewhere? I mean, somewhere did there exist a slip of paper when they paid everybody? You know uh, that says who played on what song? You know.
1: No. 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 It's not like the American system. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, when I, when I first came over to America late 60s uh, and I got back to England, I tried to get our union to follow the American, the American system and even form a session musicians union, you know, which they did in the late 80s, mm. you know, but I was out of it by then.
0: Uh, 1969, you join Tom Jones' band and sort of leave the studio and you hit the road. And he's also got a TV show, for which I want to point out, there's lots of great clips on YouTube, on the computer, of you uh, playing guitar with special guests and behind uh, Tom Jones and stuff. Was it just time for a break for you, or was the studio uh, session life winding down?
1: No, what happened really there was... um Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones were really good mates of mine. And uh, they said they were leaving the sessions and they were going to form a band, you know. Uh, And I said, well, that's that's great. You know, would I be interested now? I wouldn't be interested in anything like that because I'm doing very well, thank you. (laughs) And then I got a whole bunch of session musicians together. Barry Morgan, Alan Parker, um, Herbie Flowers, uh, various people like that, all top session guys, you know, and said, we've got to lay some tracks and make an album and, you know, uh, uh, get out on the road because they're paying fortunes, you know, on the road for bands. Um mm. They said, okay, we'll get together and... and um, do the albums, but we don't want to go out on the road, you know. So I said, well, that's silly, you know, we've got to do the, we're doing both of them is where you clean up, you know, where where you get the money. Mm. Anyway, cut a long story short. At the same time, Gordon Mills came to me, and made me an offer I couldn't refuse with Tom Jones, and uh, I joined Tom. Uh, Six, eight months later, this group came out with a song called Melting Pot, Blue Mink. And that's who I formed.
0: Uh-huh. So the, the, it was really more about just trying to get more pieces of the pie by going out and playing live?
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you were with Tom Jones for a long time. What I mean, it sounds like it must have been a riot at that time. He was sort of at his height and just a very charismatic guy and lots of hit records. What could be bad about that, you know?
1: I always say that the best forty-five years of my life were the five years I spent with Tom Jones.
0: <laughs> ah, so you you lived quite a quite a bit in those five years, yeah? Oh, I should say. Oh, dear. Uh, well, I'll. Uh, well, you can write a book, perhaps, and we'll we'll hear about it. Let me remind folks: it's WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, and WFMU.org, And Big Jim Sullivan is my guest. Uh, it, it really is an amazing, amazing uh, thing of. Uh, a list of records I just keep going back to that because it's true uh, you talked about getting a bigger share of the pie you started uh, producing records and you had a band called uh, Tiger yeah and uh, you and Derek Lawrence started a label called Retreat Records that's right and ha- was it okay being an entrepreneur or did you ever wish I was just back in the studio where all I had to do was play my guitar
1: well we had some great times in the studio I mean we actually did uh, like Chaz and Dave's first album hmm. You know, and then it was sold to EMI. Is did a great um, album with Labby Siffry, who Eminem lifted some of the tracks that we did. Right, that
0: must have been a nice uh, payday.
1: Well, it, sh- it was for Labby, yeah. It wasn't for us.
0: <laughs> OK.
1: You know, I mean, I composed... I, I did the arrangement, you know, which Eminem lifted, mm. but Labby got paid for it because it was his song.
0: Ah, I see you. Uh, uh, I, then you went on to play with Livy Newton John, the James Last Orchestra, and then you started doing music for jingles and advertisements and stuff in the 80s, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. And so that must have been a nice, you know, sort of a culmination of all of your talents sort of in one.
1: Well, it was, yes. Because uh, I, just before I joined Tom, um, 68, 67, 68, 69, I was doing arrangements full of groups and things you hmm. know i did one for um those d v whatever their name is Brosh and to da do yeah um i did uh, uh one of their hits um i did a hits for family arranged that um you know, there was there was about three or four things that I did, and I was getting known as an arranger, mm. you know, uh, which I quite enjoyed. But then when Tom came along, you know, in actual fact, I did some arrangements for Tom for his TV show. Mm. Um, it, it kind of quietened down a bit, you know.
0: And now you've got, uh, you, you have a duo that you go and play with. Is that right? Yes. And, folks, I think if they go to your website, BigJimSullivan.com, they can see upcoming dates, and there's a, a little merchandise section for folks to pick up some, uh, some records and stuff there. Uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, you're still a relatively young man. I mean, are you still making music all the time? Are you still picking up the guitar every day?
1: Well, I'm 68. Uh, unfortunately, I've got progressive heart failure, hmm. and that's uh, kind of laid me down a little bit. Um, but guitar is still a major part of my heart. Mm. You know, it's part of my. So you can't do something for the amount of years that I've done it and then just forget it. Yeah. You know. Uh. Um, I have a guitar by the side of me at all times. Uh, I don't play it much at the moment because this thing has made me very weak. You know, physically. Um, but I still listen, and I still um, want to play, you know, and I'm still trying, putting my energies into trying to play anyway.
0: Well, put your energies into, you know, getting well, uh, you know, make that your priority if you can, you know. I know sometimes that does take just physical energy just to get, just to will yourself better. I want to ask you, do you have an amazing record collection? Did you buy these records when they all came out, or did you, you know? No, I didn't.
1: But I've got a good record collection. I've got still got all my albums that I collected when I was on the road with Marty. Ah. Because Brian Bennett, Licorice Lockin, Tony Belcher, and myself were all great jazz fans. You know? And we used to collect all the Blue Note, Blue Note records um, and things like... I've got, I had, in uh, the last time I counted, which was many, many years ago, 17 versions of the Rodrigo guitar concert.
0: (laughs) Well, you can sell them on eBay, I suppose. Uh, Well, do you have some favorite sessions, just uh, to wrap up here, things that you just remember, you know, so fondly, or records that you're just especially proud of having taken part of?
1: Yes, I think think things like... um, Hold Me and Together, you know, we're, which was the first fuzz box used in this country.
0: I mean, PJ Proby, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: And, of course, Dave Berry, Croning Game.
2: Mm.
1: You know, that was um, that was the first in this country using that to uh, the arm and foot pebble. Mm. But I'd used that before uh, on Mike Cox's Sweet Little 16. Um, I mean, you know, that there are things that you think oh that was good I enjoyed that you know that was uh, fantastic you know what I mean yeah a lot of the things for instance you know uh, doing uh, Alone Again you know with Gilbert, Gilbert O'Sullivan Sullivan, yeah because we used to do all the Gilbert O'Sullivan records uh, BNC was with MAMS which is um, Gordon Mills Tom Jones agency um, and that was that was a rather a, a nice night, a lovely night when that all came together. Yes,
0: so. what is what a strange and special record that is, alone again naturally. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, it, it is. It's one of those one-off records that you, that uh, well, it, it spoke for itself. It was a hit all over the world.
0: Yeah. Well, Big Jim Sullivan, this has been a real pleasure just to get a peek inside how that how ma- so many great records sort of went down and. Uh uh, you know, just thank you for taking a minute and visiting with us today. Oh, well, thank you for uh, thinking of me. Yeah, well, uh, perhaps we'll talk again soon, because I think we've just got the tip of the iceberg here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Jim. Indeed. Thank you, too.
3: To make clear to Ever what it's like When you're shattered Left standing in the lurch At a church Where people were saying My God, that stuff She stood him up No point in us remaining We may as well go on As I did on my own Alone again Naturally To think that only yesterday Cheerful, bright, and gay, looking forward to who would the role I was about to play. But as if to knock me down, reality came around, and without so much as a mere touch, put me into little pieces, leaving me to doubt, talk about the Passed away. I cried and cried all day alone again, naturally, alone again, naturally.
1: It's Michael Shelley, Saturday on WFMU.
4: Your social world you can't come back be the first in line oh yeah you're absolutely my baby my poor Tell her